Please take your Bibles and let us look at the Word regarding this marvelous resurrection celebration. There is a curious little phrase in the book of Acts, chapter 1, that sort of sets off for us what I want to say today. If, you're, if you have not been here over the past few weeks, you will not know that we have been moving with Jesus toward the cross. And then we've been looking at how his reaction to the cross demonstrates to us our reaction to the life situations which are similar. Chapter 1 of Acts, the former account I made, verse 1, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus, for 40 days, presented him alive, himself alive by many infallible proofs, unmistakable proofs, traceable proofs, that is a tremendous phrase. What did Jesus do? The resurrected Lord presented himself to the disciples, taught them about the kingdom, and gave them commandments while proving that he was alive. I want to call this message Realizing Victory. If facing the cross was undergoing failure, Tell me, how did Jesus take victory? One of the greatest things about my wife is her ability not to gloat when she is right. Have you ever been married to somebody who tells you to stop at a gas station 13 times when you're in a strange city before you stop? You know how we men are. I can figure it out for myself. I don't need to stop. Besides, that guy probably just moved here anyway, and he doesn't know his way around this city either. And she probably working at that 7-Eleven doesn't know where Fairview Street is. Why stop? If I keep going and follow my nose, sooner or later, I will find the place. And she tells you, why don't you stop and ask? And then after you've been lost and you've driven 53 miles on a five-minute journey, you finally stop to get directions. And after the person at the gas station tells you exactly where the place you are seeking is, she sits there and doesn't say a word. What a woman. Amen? What a woman. She doesn't say, I, what class, told you so. 
She doesn't say, if you had listened to me, we would already have been there. How does Jesus take victory over the grave? One of the greatest demonstrations of resurrection life in us is for us to learn how Jesus realized victory. His victory over death was not used to gloat over his enemies. It wasn't used to punish them, but rather he used the victory of the resurrection to build the faith of his friends, the disciples. And in doing so, he demonstrated to us how to receive victory with grace. Now, to be magnanimous in defeat and not uh, make excuses for yourself is one thing, but to be magnanimous in victory, that is something else. When you've won, you've been victorious, and you don't rub it in. You take the victory with grace, and you let the victory stand. That, my friend, shows that Jesus Christ is alive, truly alive. One of the awfulest spectacles in sport, in my judgment, is the football player who has just caught a pass and scored a touchdown and gone into the end zone and has to do some kind of a taunting dance. It's about that time I want to turn the TV set off. Does that get away with you the way it gets away with me? It just seems like for some reason that's in poor taste. I want to say, oh, don't do that. How can I be magnanimous in victory when the boss is wrong and I'm right and avoid saying, I told you so. When my neighbor is wrong and I'm right to avoid saying, I knew it all the time. When my husband is wrong and I'm right to avoid saying, if you had only listened to me. You see, the temptations for Jesus, had he been like us with the nature of human nature, when he won the victory of the resurrection, the temptation would have been to prove to his enemies that they were wrong and he was right. I would have probably done that had I been Jesus. I probably would have made a visit to Caiaphas' house and said, yeah, 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 here I am. But somehow that doesn't fit the Savior, does it? Just doesn't fit. Well, another temptation was to use his victory to gloat and to shame his enemies and to say to his disciples, now go back and tell them, see there, I did it. You never read that in the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Another temptation would be to use his victory to force everybody else to agree with him. Well, I was right this time. Now you'll listen to me in the future. Oh, what a temptation. That is the nature of human nature, isn't it? Another one is to use triumph to exercise control over somebody or power over somebody and say, now you'll see who I really am and how smart I really am. 
I want you to come with me on a journey through the Scripture. Will you do it? How many want to line up? Let's, let's walk through the last 40 days in which there were infallible proofs that were revealed. And I find the 10 striking appearances of the resurrected Christ. The first is found in John chapter 20. Okay, take your Bibles and go with me if you have them. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 11. The first appearance in which this triumphant Christ is revealed is to Mary Magdalene. Verse 11, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb and saw the angels. And they said to her in verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus and did not know that it was Jesus. And he said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away and you know where they have laid him, I will t tell me and I will take him away. And all Jesus said to her was, Mary, Mary. And she knew immediately it was Jesus. And she said, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Now, here is Jesus revealing himself to Mary Magdalene. The familiar phrase, she had heard him call her before, Mary. I would know my mother's voice calling me, though it's been a long time since I was a child. I would know my wife's voice calling me. I hear it regularly. I would know most of you or many of you if you called me because I know your voice. The shepherd usually knows the sheep and the sheep knows the shepherd. There is this appearance to Mary and very gently he just says to her, now wait a minute, don't cling to me, don't get too accustomed to me, verse 17, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren, you Mary go, and say, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. The second appearance, if you follow them, are you through with that one? Do you get the picture in the garden? Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. If you go to Matthew's account, chapter 28, you might want to hold your hand in John because we'll be back there. But in Matthew 28, Jesus appeared to the other women. And the scripture tells us, verse 9, that as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said, Do not be afraid, but go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so he now appears to this small group of ladies who clustered around Mary Magdalene, and Jesus revealed himself to them and said, now go back to my disciples and tell them that I'm going to meet them up north in Galilee. I'll be there. And so they hurry to tell the disciples. 
Now we move to Luke's gospel, and you see the third time Jesus revealed himself. He finds two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13. They're traveling. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And in verse 14, they talked together of all these things which had happened. And while they conversed and reasoned, I can just see it now. I wonder how this happened. I wonder why that happened. The resurrected Christ draws near in verse 15 and went with them. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that conversation, walking down the road seven miles from Jerusalem and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ walking? We don't know exactly what there was about him that they could not identify him, but perhaps it was their grief, perhaps it was their tears, they couldn't see through the eyes. They couldn't recognize. Maybe they were so depressed they didn't look up to examine him carefully. But verse 16 says, their eyes were restrained. They just didn't know who it was. And, and, and they did not know him. And he said, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk? and are sad. Jesus noticed how very sad they were. Well, the one named Cleopas answered, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's too bad you're a stranger and you don't know about the events of these days. Where have you been? He said to them, what things? <laughs> now, you know that he knew, but the resurrected Christ asked the question, what things? And they said the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. Do you not know how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him? <laughs> and then the scripture says that uh, in verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And in verse 30, it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And now watch verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. Isn't it fascinating how Jesus reveals himself in the common things of life? They were sitting down to a lovely meal they had a stranger that they'd invited. They didn't know who this was. And as he says grace, and he, this is not the Lord's Supper. This is not a Passover. This is not a communion. This is Christ sitting down to a sandwich with his friends or whatever they had. It might have been pita bread and chickpea spread. I don't know. I like that, by the way. Have you ever tried that? That's very good. And it's not highly fattening, too. I know those things. But it was as he prayed that their eyes, verse 31 says, were opened and they knew him. And when they knew him, the resurrected Christ vanished out of their sight as if to say, that's all of myself I'm going to give you just for now. The fourth appearance comes in Luke chapter 24, verse 33. When they rose up from that meal that very hour, and returned to Jerusalem. They walked seven miles back to Jerusalem and found the 11 disciples and those who were with them gathered together. 
And they said, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now underline that because that's all the reference we have that Jesus made a special appearance to Simon. Until you get to 1 Corinthians when Paul says he appeared to Peter. This is probably the greatest untold story in all the Bible. We do not know when he appeared to Peter. We do not know how he appeared to Peter, except that Peter had let him down and Jesus was anxious to let Peter know that he still loved him and that it was all right. He had made a mistake, but that Christ had forgiven him. And we know he appeared to Peter somehow, sometime, somewhere, but no more is told of the appearance to Peter. Do you know there are some things that happen to us in our lives which just can never be told? I've had experiences that there are not words to explain. I've had things happen to me I just cannot tell you. You wouldn't understand. There have been things that have happened to me that God has done in my life which are impossible to share. Some things can only be stated and this story remains untold and it's just a secret between you and God. It's a mystery. I think that's the way it is with Peter. He never ever told us when Jesus spoke to him or how Jesus spoke to him, but Christ administered to Peter and said, it's all right. You've really goofed, Peter, but I still love you. The next appearance of Jesus is to the surprised disciples without Thomas. Without Thomas, that is what happens in verse 36 of this chapter of Luke. As they said these things, the two on the road to Emmaus come back to Jerusalem, tell the eleven, tell them about somehow they knew about Peter, and now verse 36... As they said these things, suddenly Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? And in verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still not did they still did not believe for joy and marveled. He said to them, have you any food here? Now you think I talk a lot about food. Here is the resurrected Christ meeting with the 11. And what's the first subject he brings up? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> food. <laughs> but I think he wanted to show them that there was a quality to this resurrected body that was just like the physical body. He even ate broiled fish with them on the side of Galilee later. What an appearance to the surprised disciples. And they were so joyous they would hardly pay attention to Jesus. To the surprised disciples, Christ revealed his hands and his feet. The sixth appearance of Jesus is to the disciples a week later, next Sunday evening, convincing Thomas. And you find that account in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, you see the appearance to the disciples when Thomas the doubter is there. And in verse 26, after eight days, 
His disciples were again inside, John 20, 26. And Thomas was with them, John notes. And Jesus came, and the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Thomas, I know what you said about me, that you wouldn't believe I was resurrected. Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. You know, there's no record that Thomas ever had to touch the nail prints. There's no record that he ever had to touch the feet. The scripture says, Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus cued us. He said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Oh, it's a higher faith to trust the resurrected Christ when you haven't seen him. If you always need a sign, if you always need a miracle, that may not be the highest of faith. But Thomas saw him and believed. I don't know what all the qualities of the new body are, but I know that he suddenly appeared in the midst of them. I know that he transcended matter. I know that he passed through the wall. It's the nature of human nature in our rebellious state to try to be like God without God and to try to transcend the normal by ourselves and in our own power. That is why the Heaven's Gate people took their own lives. Their leader had said, we're going to a higher level. They saw Heobop, thought an intergalactic star was going to come and pick them up. They were trying to transcend to a higher level of life without God by themselves. Somebody brought to me all the information off the Internet. Have you seen that? All the information that was on the Internet about the Heaven's Gate? How many of you have already gone into the Internet and seen that? Anybody out here done that? Well, you, you ought to read that. Their whole goal was to transcend normal life, and they thought that this was a sign that there was going to be a spaceship come down and pick them up and take them to a new level of life where their leader, Doe, had pointed them. I'll tell you what, there is a new level of life. There is a day when we will transcend this world. There is a day when we will live above matter and material. There is a day when we will be beyond the touch of this world and we'll be outside the realm of Satan, but it won't come through a hail pop and it won't come through an intergalactic spaceship. It'll come by the simple power of the resurrection by which Jesus was gloriously raised and manifested himself with many infallible proofs. That's all I could desire. There is... A sixth, a seventh appearance. And that is in John 21 while you're here. To the seven disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. Look in chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself. Now notice how direct the language is. Showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Now count, Simon Peter, one, Thomas, called Didymus, two, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, three, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, that would be, four and five, and two others of his disciples, six and seven. 
And Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said, we're going with you. They went out, caught nothing that night. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples didn't know who it was. And he said to them, oh, I wish we could pick up the sounds. I'd love to hear that. Children, have you any food? You've been out fishing on your own. Did you catch anything? (laughs) And the answer was no. And he said, well, drop your nets over on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And they cast and there was so many fish. This is the fish story of all fish stories. There were so many fish that the net would not even hold them and they couldn't pull it in. Seasoned fishermen. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, which would have been whom, class? John. The disciple said to Peter, Oh, don't you see? It is the resurrected Lord. There he is again. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, you got to credit Simon Peter. He was impulsive, but he was not so impulsive he he forgot to put on his clothes. He put on his robe, the, the outer garment, the scripture says, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea, just dived right in. The other disciples were a little bit more reasoning. They got in the boat and came in. You see that? And as soon as they had come to land, now here we have food again. They saw a fire of coals and fish laid on it and bread. (laughs) Now notice Jesus already had it. And then he said, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And they added large fish, 153 large fish. The first time we ever took a group from Calvary to the Holy Land, we went to the uh, restaurant there and had Peter's fish with the heads still on. And I think it was Shirley or somebody who said, I don't believe I can eat this while this thing is staring at me. (laughs) So I had to cut the head off the Peter's fish. (laughs) And even then... It seemed like the eye was still looking at her. And then the scripture says, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. That's one reason why breakfast is one of my very favorite meals. Don't you love breakfast? When I get up, I'm starved. I love breakfast. I allowed myself the luxury of a hard-boiled colored Easter egg I made with my granddaughter, which said Emily on one side and Papa on the other. I'm Papa, not Emily. (laughs) And that was my breakfast with a piece of sugar cake and a half a banana and three prunes and a glass of orange juice and a glass of milk and two cups of coffee. How's that for breakfast? And it was good. Jesus said, come and eat breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, are you Jesus for sure? knowing that it was the Lord. The next appearance of Jesus is to 500 people on a mountain in Galilee, and that account is found in Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And we believe that this is the large group that Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians. The 11 disciples went away 
into Galilee to the mountain. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And there's a large gathering on the mountain. Then you have the ninth appearance, which Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it is the appearance that he mentions to his brother James. He says, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15, After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles, which may indicate he had one more uh, look at them, and then he was seen by me as one out of due season. So that last appearance is probably what Luke is describing in Acts chapter 1 when he gathered the disciples together and said in verse 7 of Acts 1, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. The ascension was the end of one stage, but it was the beginning of another. And it was the appointment of a commission and a charge to all of us. Now we've journeyed with Jesus through those 10 appearances, through 40 days, by many infallible proofs by which there was no question in the mind of Luke. Can I share with you the five basic lessons that we learn from Jesus in the victory of the resurrection? The first is this. Listen, hear me carefully. Jesus let the victory of the resurrection speak for itself. He let the victory of the resurrection speak for itself. He didn't rub it in. Now, if I had been Jesus, by the way, if you want to see Jesus' life through different interesting eyes, go one step beyond asking what Jesus would do if he were you today. Go back and ask what you would do if you had been Jesus then. And I can tell you, if I had been Jesus after the resurrection. You know what I'd have done? I'd have, I'd have been at Caiaphas' house rubbing it in, wouldn't you? How many of you would have done what I'd have done? I'd have said, see there, I told you so. I told you, look, look, you, you, you thought I was just hot air. Now, now look at me, look at me. I would have gone to the crowd and drawn a big crowd and I'd have made a great big speech. Would you, is that what you would have done? But not Jesus. He is the Son of God, and He lets the victory speak for itself. Sometimes the greatest testimony that you can give is just that you are and that God is, and He has brought you through the trial, and He's brought you through the, the defeat, and He's brought you through the failure, and He set you up upon a rock, as the psalmist said, and up on a rock. The victory doesn't need to say anything except to stand there and say, God is God, and Jesus is Lord, and here we are, and He has gained the victory. He didn't force himself on anybody. He simply 
let the victory speak for itself. I am struck by the fact that in Matthew, Matthew's account, the scripture tells us that, that uh, the guards in Matthew 28, 4 shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And then in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. See, he let others tell his story and not himself. He let the guards go back and rub in the victory. Jesus didn't have to say anything except to let the victory speak for itself. Secondly, Jesus let the resurrection strengthen the faith of his friends and his disciples. He used the resurrection not to shame others, but to build his own. He used the victory to strengthen those who were his. As they went to tell his disciples, Jesus met the women and he said, Rejoice. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Go to Galilee. I want to meet with them and I want to see them and I want to strengthen them. And when you look at all these appearances, the striking thing is that Jesus used his victory to build up their faith not to gloat over the enemy, but to strengthen his friends and to build them up. Third, Jesus let the victory speak to them of his new relationship to them and to the heavenly father. He said, I'm going back to my father. I'm going to ascend. And he is my father and your father. And I have a new relationship. I'm done with my travail on earth and I'm going back to God. And when I go back to God, I want you to know that he is your father as well as my father if you do my will. And so he let the victory speak to them of the effects of the resurrection. The resurrection, the fact that Jesus was alive means that I have victory over death, but it also means that I have a new relationship with God and I have hope and I have promise out of failure. That's what it means. And God is my God. And someday I'll have a body fashioned just like the glorified body of Jesus. Fourth, Jesus used the victory to give hope. He used the victory of the resurrection to give hope. Do you remember those two on the road to Emmaus? Oh, they said, we are so sad because we had hoped that it would be Jesus who would redeem Israel. And now he's gone and we don't know what we're going to do. And Jesus revealed himself to them and gave them the promise of hope. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know how deep have been your shadows. I don't know how tough has been your suffering. I don't know how, how grievous have been your sorrows. But I want to tell you this, that this resurrection day means there is hope and Jesus is alive and there is hope, there is reason to live and reason to go on. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. It is simply the entrance to glory and to life. That is why the angel said, why seek ye the living among the dead? Because death meant life for the believer. But the fifth thing is the resurrection. Jesus used the resurrection to challenge his disciples for the future. To give them purpose. Twice. Two different times. Go ye and tell the world. Tarry for power and then be my witnesses. 
Go announce to the world. Go ye into all the world. Tell everybody you know. The women, go tell the disciples. The disciples, go tell the world. The world, go tell somebody else. All the resurrection means we have a story to tell. You know what strikes me about the resurrection story? The way we human beings are, if we have a great experience, everybody wants to come and TV cameras gather. Tell us what it was like. You know, I wonder how many of the disciples asked Jesus to tell them what it was like to die on the cross. And where were you for the last three days? I mean, would you have asked Jesus that? I would have. What have you been doing? What was hell like? What was it like when you closed your eyes and died, when you gave up the Spirit? What was it like? Tell me about it. Give me more information. Tell me. Explain. Do you know there's not one conversation in the Scripture about that? But what he did do was he concentrated on the future and said, it's not important what happened to me going through death. Actually, if he had told us what happened to him during those three days, we might be even more afraid to die than we are now. Have you thought about that? But he concentrated on the future and he said, now that I'm alive, you've got a story to tell. You've got a message to preach. Call men everywhere to repentance. And I give you my authority to do that. In World War I, General Douglas MacArthur was commander over several battalions. He had a battle going on in which a battalion was almost certainly going to face heavy death. He called the major who commanded the battalion and he said, Major, I want you to take your battalion over that hill. I know it's dangerous. And therefore, I want you to be the first one to cross the hill. Lead your men and they will follow. Don't stand behind and let them go first. He realized in a quick moment that his major had a few reservations. And without hesitation, MacArthur reached to his uniform, pulled off his distinguished service cross, a medal he had won for valor in duty, and he took it and pinned it on the major and said, now I know you can lead them. You've already got the cross. And in a moment, the pride swelled up in that major and he took his men over the hill and led them to triumph because MacArthur had commissioned him in advance with the cross. <laughs> Any of us today could face death this week. Any of us in this room today could have life come to a quick end before the next Lord's Day. But we gather on this glad resurrection day to acknowledge He has taken the sting out of death. He has taken the fear out of death. He has taken the fear out of suffering. He has taken the fear out of hardship. He has taken the fear out of failure. He has pinned the cross on us he has given us his own authority and his life. And in advance, he sent us to, do a, to carry a message and to do a task and carry it out for his glory. And he has promised to go with us in doing it. And I can cross the hill. And I can go into battle next week. 
and the next week and the next week until Jesus comes because Christ is alive and because he has pinned me already with a cross. Amen and amen. Let's stand. Our Father, we thank you for the glory of the resurrection. Your power has raised your son. Many of us are dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead in terms of life. We're not enjoying the abundant life. We're enjoying a bondage life, a fearful life. We're not enjoying the rich life. We're enjoying a very meager life. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of suffering. On this resurrection day, call us to repent and to turn by faith to Christ and receive him because he died for us on the cross. And at that moment, when we die with you at the cross by faith, Father, I know that you give us the hope of the resurrection as Jesus proved he was alive, so we shall be alive. Make that a reality in our lives this day. In Jesus' name, amen.